0: You're listening to the Gluten-Free Guide Podcast with your hosts, Vanessa Weisbrod and Emily Friedner. Welcome to the Gluten-Free Guide Podcast. I'm Vanessa Weisbrod coming to you from the Celiac Disease Program at Children's National Health System. I'm so excited about our podcast today. We have the famous Dr. Benny Kersner, the medical director of our program, talking to us about best practices for the management of celiac disease. My co-host, Ellen Wilcox, will be interviewing him, and he's got some great advice for parents on how to make sure their kids are getting the best possible treatment. So Ellen, I'm handing it to you.
1: Welcome, Dr. Kersner. We're so happy you could join us today. I wanna ask you a few questions about best practices. For managing celiac disease and I understand there is a paper published about that in the journal Pediatrics. So, how should these guidelines be used by medical professionals and parents?
2: Well, you are right, there is a terrific paper published by Dr. Snyder um, who led this program in this area. Yes. and. Um, Over time, it became apparent to the group that while we've learned an enormous amount about Celiac disease, we now know how common it is. We now know how to diagnose it. We know a lot about the mechanism that establishes it. We have great information on the variety of ways it presents, and guidelines have been written for practicing physicians and healthcare providers um, to help them. Deal with this particular problem. But on analysis, the guidelines written have been an emphasizing diagnosis and screening. And yet, once the disease is established, we didn't have agreed upon guidelines with a consensus saying this is what we should do. And let me just add a little think about the challenge we have a disease with multiple presentations with a variety of other conditions that that could accompany it, with uh, no end of tests available to look at these in an environment where cost-benefit ratios are becoming more and more critical. So how do we select to do the right things to make sure that the patient is getting everything they need over an extended period of time in a balanced fashion. The answer to that is to establish best practices in inverted commas. And the way you go about that is complex. It's not simple. You gather together experts. You review the literature in great detail and highly critically. You rate it for the quality of what you're finding. You rate it to see if the risk and benefits or whatever you're wanting to do are acceptable. You put all that together, and then you vote anonymously to say, would this best practice really be worthwhile? Well, Dr. Snyder gathered together a group of six superb clinicians renowned in the area to do just that. And then they chose six particular topics to evaluate and sat down together, and went through these best practices, distilled from them what ought to be done at the time you first encounter the patient, and then at subsequent visits, and sent it to be published in what is surely the best of art journals in this area for that purpose, which is pediatrics, and it's an honor to be published there. And it says something about the validity of what you've done, and degree to which it should be shared.
1: Well, it sounds like a wonderful resource for clinicians as well as for, for parents, hopefully, too, who want to be educated.
2: Absolutely.
1: So you mentioned, you know, diagnosis and also management. Right. Looking at, starting with diagnosis, since that comes first, does this paper address blood tests and what might be the most appropriate blood right. test for children? In
2: the area of testing, mm-hmm. a lot's been done before. But the group was able to confirm, this was not their focus, but they've confirmed that the traditional approach, what has become the established approach for North America, is a, is what they would agree to endorse.
1: And how
0: would you describe and that? And
2: so they do a blood test for what's called the anti-tissue transglutaminase which is dependent on a molecule called IgA, so it's the IgA anti-tissue transglutaminase.
1: Is that the TTG test? That is
2: exactly right. So it's tissue transglutaminase. And that test is highly sensitive for the illness. It is not totally effective, but it's a phenomenally good screen. And provided you're able to make IgA, it's very effective, and that's what's used mainly to screen for the condition. Once you get a positive screen, you move on to prove it with a biopsy.
1: I see. So um, the thinking in this paper is that a biopsy is still necessary for children. I know parents of young children would love to not have to take that step, but it is still considered very important. we,
2: We believe that together it is important because there are both false negative and false positives that can occur with the serology and because testing for it is variable in different laboratories and because you've got a lifelong condition that you're going to have to adhere to indefinitely, we want ultimate proof at the outset.
1: I see, I see. Well, now moving to the topic of managing the disease, when a patient is newly diagnosed with celiac disease, what would be the next thing a physician should do?
2: Well, you know, it's a good question. I, I, and I thought, <laughs> as I think about it, what do I do? Well, I can tell you the very first thing I do is sit down and say, we need to talk. And that talk involves both an understanding that you've got a chronic illness, but closely coupled with the understanding that we have incredibly effective therapy. And while it's challenging, we will be there to support you in it. And with that support, I can promise you almost certainly a terrific outcome.
1: Great. That's great to hear. Uh, Should children be screened for nutritional deficiencies when they're diagnosed? Is that something, I, I imagine that's something parents might be concerned about. Right.
2: Well, at the time of diagnosis, there is obviously a history and a physical, and that, in a sense, begins the the screening process, the physical might have elements that clearly suggest the child's malnourished. And so in the classical presentations of celiac disease, these would be children whose growth was failing, who was they were losing milestones, they might be distended, they might have diarrhea, they might have a, you know, a variety of symptoms. But let's assume in this modern day that the screening was early that there were not a whole lot of symptoms there. Well, we do some basics invariably. We like to do a blood count. We know that anemia is one of the commonest presentations, that it's iron deficiency anemia that is the most likely cause by far. And you can have iron deficiency even before you're anemic. So we advocate, and this paper advocates, getting a blood count, looking at the red blood cell size, looking at serum iron and some of the iron repletion indices that we have in the blood work. But what we don't advocate is a broad blanket screen for nutritional deficiencies ranging from zinc to folic acid and various other things that are described to be, uh, you know, not absent but at least depleted because we know the diet and appropriate nutritional intervention is gonna take care of that in the vast majority of cases. And exaggerating the cost with a blanket screen is discouraged.
1: I see, so is the thinking, if a child is diagnosed with celiac disease, you know you're going to put them on a gluten-free diet, and therefore they'll get better nutrition. Not
2: just you're gonna put them on a gluten-free diet, you're gonna put them on a gluten-free diet, you're gonna have a discussion about bone density, You're going to have a discussion about adequate amounts of calcium. You're going to have a discussion about um, multivitamins. Um, You know, you're going to do stuff that's going to take care of a lot of things.
1: Great. Are there follow-up procedures that parents should expect for their children over time?
2: Yes, absolutely. Um, You know, adherence to a gluten-free diet is challenging. Um, interestingly enough it's most challenging in the adolescent and we find many of the young children are remarkably compliant Uh, you know rather enviably so and very sweetly so they're correcting their parents but all said and done the diet is difficult, there is cross-contamination, there's room for error so certainly you need follow up and you need to be in the Company, or, or you, for that, you need an experienced dietitian, you need a healthcare provider who's familiar with the condition, and you certainly need to return to make sure that even with the best of intentions, you're actually meeting the standard that's needed.
1: So, is there a test that can be used to help check that?
2: Right. Well, if we were to use one test, probably that same anti-tissue transglutaminase, that (laughs) TG that we spoke about earlier, um, is what we use, and it's been evaluated and well-tested, and in the vast majority of cases, it's helpful. It comes down slowly, so at the beginning of the illness, you might have a very high value, and you return... in three to six months and it's not normal yet, it isn't reason to panic because it can take a good many months for it to return to normal. But we track it, proving that we're heading in the right direction. And if we can't achieve that, it says we really need to look a lot more closely at what's happening.
1: So by that, look closer at the diet that the fam- that the exactly. person is following. Exactly. Okay, because they may be eating something that they didn't realize. Right, all
2: sorts of things go wrong. What happens at school, you know, not just at the home, but even within the home, what toaster are you using and so on and so forth.
1: Yes, yes. The best practices paper that we are speaking about mentions that the hepatitis B vaccine may not work well in some people with undiagnosed celiac disease. So what does that mean for patients?
2: Well, um, we assume that because you've been vaccinated you automatically will establish a memory of that occurrence which will protect you. But there are a significant number of patients who with immune issues might not do that well, and we have found, medicine has found, that amongst celiac patients a significant proportion uh, have not developed the antibodies to the hepatitis B vaccine that they need to assure that they're protected, and obviously if we find that, we're going to want to give a booster, we want to make sure that they're retested after they're established on the diet and that they are indeed protected.
1: So should newly diagnosed children be checked for yes, this we,
2: we believe that they should be checked.
1: Okay, okay. So if parents are concerned, they should ask their right, physician. Right, right. Okay. How can parents be sure that their child is getting the right type of follow-up for managing celiac disease?
2: Well, I, I think... you you know ideally you should be seen by at least a dietitian who is very familiar with the disease and there are a number of reasons why even though there are nutritional problems prior to diagnosis that will be resolved by the institution of the gluten-free diet the diet itself carries risks as I'm sure many might appreciate. It tends to be a high-calorie diet. The attempt to make foods delectable is often accompanied by too many calories. And um, recently, there's even been studies suggesting that there could be more heart disease and more obesity in people on a gluten-free diet that's not carefully monitored.
1: Is that because of typical replacement foods rather than just regular whole foods
2: that you see? Yes, I think, you you know, the tendency uh, for many patients is to take on the things that taste great. Look, I think of it this way, it's true for all of us, You, you know, we're all tempted, we all live in an environment where diets are very challenging, but when you're restricting a good number of the readily acquired foods and you're turning to the others, There's a chance that you might, if you're a child, certainly, and even adults, will select things that taste better and are easy and convenient. And uh, there is such an emphasis now on the provision of gluten-free diet foods, many of them not so wholesome, that one needs to monitor now, not only for adherence to the diet, but for the balance of the nutritional consequences and taking particular care to make sure that calcium intake uh, and vitamin D intake, and particularly in some climates, is sufficient.
1: Dr. Kersner, is there anything else you'd like to share with us today?
2: Well, yes. I I think think one thing that I have learned as I've listened to many parents and now in this somewhat privileged position as a director of this program, So many mothers expressed to me the fact that they weren't heard, that they had known things were not right and yet it took them sometimes a good many years to get the screening done. I'm hopeful that we will become uh, more educated and that doctor and patient can work together with an understanding that this is common, it's 1% of the population, it's a lot of children, and we have to have a relatively low threshold uh, of suspicion.
1: Well, I hope that all the good work that you and your team are doing with this program at Children's National, as well as this best practices paper will help achieve that. Thank you, thank, thank you, you very you. much. Thank you, Dr. Kirsner, this it's was a wonderful to speak with you.
0: What a fascinating interview. Thank you so much, Dr. Kersner, for joining us today and to Ellen for conducting that wonderful interview. I definitely learned a lot. I want to thank everybody for listening today and we'll speak to you again soon on our next podcast. And as always, a huge thank you to the Walter and Jean Boak Global Autoimmune Institute for making this podcast possible.